the great Australian toilet paper crisis of 2020 has arrived. Hasn't it been extraordinary to see people stripping sharp supermarket shelves? I mean, yes, it's good to be prepared, and at some point you had to stay home for two weeks, but this is crazy. Well, thanks to the overexcited world media, Aussies have gone into panic mode well before the threats materialised. I always enjoy reading Ross Gittins in the Sydney Morning Herald, and this week he looked at the overreaction to the crisis and therefore to an amplified economic impact. He said... According to Professor Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law School, a lot of people are more scared than they have any reason to be. They have an exaggerated sense of their own personal risk. Roskins says that's because humans are notoriously bad at assessing the risks they face. Studies by psychologists and behavioural economists show individuals typically overestimate risks that are memorable, vivid, or generate fear, while underestimate more common risks. We shouldn't underestimate the coronavirus, but we need to get a sense of perspective. We need to understand and respond to the realities of the situation, not the hype. Hence the sign out the front of the church. Now, how wonderful that in God's timing, we're looking closely at the book of Revelation, this term, in which God reveals how the world really is, past, present and future. To see that Christ has conquered so we can conquer. And today we come to a high point, the the wonderful vision of Revelation 4. And here we see ultimate reality and it's a Copernican revolution. See, today Jesus stands at the door and knocks and What happens when we open the door? We see what it means to live a life of worship centred on God and gathered before his throne. So what is the ultimate reality of the universe? And how do I live in the light of that ultimate reality? How can I live in touch with reality and make decisions in touch with reality, no matter what's going on in our world and in my life? It is the bigger question. Why do I do what I do? It's a question we need to ask ourselves every day. Why do I work in this job and not that job? Why do I work at all? Why not just lie on the beach all day or stay in bed and watch Netflix? I mean, what's the purpose? What purpose do I have and what goals do I have and where do they come from and how do they fit into the bigger purpose of life itself? You see, for some people, there isn't a reason or purpose. There is no purpose in life. They're just, there's nothing. They're called atheists. It's ironic, really, given that they like to say that they rely on reason. But if the universe (coughs) is an accident and you or I are just chemicals, life has no meaning. There is no reason for my life or the world. My life has no meaning. It just has existence. We're just here because we're here because we're here. You know, there was a big explosion that happened a long time ago, and over a long period of time, the world's developed, and, well, here we are, we're just here. Just a cosmic accident without any reason. And the crazy thing is that atheists pride themselves on reason. The trouble is that we need to make up purposes and meaning and reasons to get out of bed tomorrow. Otherwise, why bother if it's all just a cosmic accident? For something to have a meaning... It needs to be made by someone or owned by someone. The thing itself doesn't mean anything. Atheists who are honest realise the trouble is that life is meaningless. But Christians know, and if you remember 
back to the book of Ecclesiastes, that although the endless cycles of the world seem meaningless in themselves, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the writer to Ecclesiastes, he also comes to the conclusion or realises that God has set eternity in the human heart, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. You see, there is eternity in our hearts. There is a purpose, and we all know that deep down. We all feel that deep down. But the God of the world, the God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who set everything up the way it is, has set it up such that we can't work out what that is for ourselves. We have that sense that life is full of meaningfulness, that life has a purpose. We just don't know what it is. The scientist can't discover purpose looking through a microscope or an astronomer gazing through a telescope into the galaxy. You and I, we have to look beyond the galaxy. We have to look into our creator's reason for creating us. We need to look into heaven. We need to look into eternity to find where purpose and ultimate reality is. But how do I look into heaven and discover this purpose? If only we could just see it. It's so funny we could just look into heaven and have it explained to us. Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Well, here we are, following on from the encouragements and challenges that Christ gave to us last week in his letters to the church. We were left with the words at the end of chapter 3 ringing in our ears. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It. It's a scene that's beautifully brought to life in the very famous painting depicting this verse called The Light of the World by William Holman Hunt. But now the door is opened. As we come to chapter 4, we move past the everyday concerns of the church in chapters 2 and 3 on earth. John's attention lifts us to heaven. We see the open door. And what do we see? We see a vision of God himself. We see God's sovereign majesty and glory in highly symbolic Old Testament soaked living technicolor. I'd like if you have a look with me from verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Then verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And finally, verse 6, although before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Heaven 
we see is more than the sky, uh, the future, a place you go when you die. Heaven is a present reality, the place where God lives and reigns now. It's the ultimate reality that is constantly reacting with our present reality. And today we've had the privilege of having a peek, a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse through the open door to see ultimate reality and to see the world as it really is under the rule of heaven. What we've seen since the beginning of the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, is that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. What was hidden is now revealed. And uh, if uh, you remember, there's a progression. In chapter 1, we get that grand vision, which John was instructed Uh, in which John was instructed to send report cards to the seven churches. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the letter to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 to stay faithful. Each was under tremendous pressure to compromise. And the the letter was written so that they might conquer, not compromise. Because Jesus has conquered in his death and resurrection. And now John chapter 4 We come to, and John looks again, and the door to heaven is open, and it's not just inside his head. He's actually looking up into heaven. And he has this invitation to come inside, and the vision is just so majestic. He uses this incredibly wonderful symbolic language to paint a vivid picture. Now, don't get too hung up on the details. Sometimes people get a little bit obsessed in all the details trying to work out what each and everything points to precisely and trying to nail it down. And that becomes a bit of a problem. What we need to do is to take in the grand sweep of the vision that is painted for us. He's shown what must soon take place. It's what will happen. He's showing us what is there now. And if you can see what's there now, then you'll know what will inevitably take place next. We're given the full picture of the present as opposed to the partial picture, the limited picture we get when we just look out on the world, when we read the Herald, when we when we go online. John says, well, I'm going to show you heaven and now it will make sense. You will see what must take place. Now, those of us familiar with the Bible will know he's not the first to do this. The prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, And I do encourage you to go back and look at their visions, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, and see how John draws on their imagery and symbolism. We use symbols all the time. Symbols are evocative. They paint a picture. They give impressions. So, well, I know that our Australian athletes are still hoping to go to Tokyo to get gold and silver and bronze. And when I say that, you know what I mean. Married couples who are here today, they wear, you'll see around you, a wedding ring. Most Chinese people have cars with the number eight on their number plate. You might have noticed that when you were parking out in the front today. You never see one with 444. You see, symbols often enable us to feel things better than just describing them literally. Well, here in Revelation, we've got a throne. And a throne means authority. But who are these 24 elders? They've got crowns and so they rule. But are they human? Are they angelic? Are they the 12 Old Testament tribes and the 12 uh, apostles of the New Testament? Well, they could be. 
but we're never told. So if we aren't told, we don't need to know precisely. They're wearing white garments. In Australian culture, white normally symbolises purity. In China, in China's culture, it's death. Red is the picture of happiness, and so brides wear red in China, but in Australia, she wears white, so she's not a scarlet lady, which means something else. The culture determines these things. White in the Bible means conquest and victory, and so these are the conquering kings of the universe. But who are they? Well, then there's the thunder and the lightning. And we, we know what that feels like, having experienced storms, incredible storms over summer, the relentless blast of thunder for hours and hours and hours. And it's meant to also remind us of Moses at Mount Sinai. And then we come to the number seven. Seven is the symbolic number for completeness. It's not seven spirits, but the Holy Spirit. The Jews back then were afraid of the chaos and perils of the sea, but here in heaven the picture is a sea as smooth as glass. Evil and chaos have been defeated. And then there's these four living ones, symbolising the noblest, the strongest, the wisest, and the swiftest living beings created by God. There are many eyes which speak of their insight, knowing what humanity for all its knowledge does not know, that the Lord God Almighty is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the eternal creator who gives meaning and purpose to life. Now, we don't know exactly what each symbol is, but there is a feeling there. Most importantly, there's an overall picture which is clear. This is the throne room of heaven. This is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The centerpiece is the one on the throne, and yet he's never described. All the action you might notice is around the throne, and the key thing is not what each element is, but what each element does, especially the two key ones, the living ones and the elders. They do something. They say something. See, the living creatures, the living ones, sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're ceaselessly praising God for three things. His holiness, his almightiness, and his permanence. Holy means he is unique. There is nothing or no one else like this one. He is incomparable. He's the power above every power, and he is eternal. And they live for what purpose? They, give, they live to give glory to God. And whenever they sing their song, which is all the time, the elders then fall down and worship. They take their crowns off, their, their sign of authority. They lay it down before him and they sing their song, their majestic song. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And these elders, these 24 elders, whoever they are, these victorious ones, in their white robes, are in the centre of heaven around the living creatures and the one on the throne. And what's important about them is not who they are, but what they do and what they sing. You see, they acknowledge the one on the throne is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and their thrones come and go, but his throne is for eternity. They declare God is worthy, worthy to receive all glory, honour, power. Now, when you think for a moment, who would you give all glory, honour and power? The Prime Minister? <laughs> no, no way. 
See, democracy is all about making sure we give nobody any power. We don't trust any one person with all power because we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. See, that's why things never really seem to happen in a democracy. We keep wanting governments to fix the problems, fix the coronavirus, fix the bushfires, fix the drought, fix the trains, fix the traffic, fix the economy too while you're at it. Thanks very much. But they can't. We give them only limited power and they only have limited power. We never give anyone all glory, honour and power to rule over us for all time. Now, why is that? We don't trust them. We don't trust human nature because we know what humans are like. Just look in the mirror. But here the kings of the universe give to the one who sits on the throne all glory, honour and power. Why? Look at verse 11. This is a very important verse for us. Verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Do you see it? Here is the importance of creation. What matters is that the world is not an accident. The world has been made, created by a personal God. It's not a meaningless explosion, not a chance chemical reaction. We haven't always existed in one form or another. No, we have been created by a personal God who has made the universe out of nothing. It's all his. He's created us for his purpose and he's given us meaning. That is our perception That is our sense that the world is meaningful. And that is not a wrong impression. But you'll never understand what it is just looking for it by gazing into yourself. It's not the meaning I've made up. That's just fiction. The meaning of life is the meaning the creator gives to life. He created the world to fulfill his purposes. God has made out of nothing everything. And grasping this is a Copernican revolution. You know, a Copernican revolution? You know, we say the sun rises or the sun sets, but of course it didn't rise or set. The world rotated. You know, I could say, look, I was on the beach the other day and I saw a beautiful earth rotation. (laughs) Doesn't quite have the same ring. No, the sun seems to move, doesn't it? We know that the earth actually rotates around its own axis every 24 hours and that the sun rotates and around, sorry, and around the earth rotates around the sun every 365 days. Better get that right. Um, once you get the perspective right, then so many things begin to make sense about the stars and galaxy, the moon, the tides, and just everything makes sense. The Copernican revolution was a simple shift in focus from earth-centered to sun-centered. And this is a similar shift in focus from me-centered to God-centered. I haven't made God. God has made me. My purpose isn't found in me. My purpose is found in God. He determines the meaning of my life. I do not determine the meaning of my life. The meaning and purpose of my life is the meaning he has given to my life because he has created my life. It's a simple Copernican revolution kind of change. It's not about me. It's about God. So all is his and deserves to be his. And so you can't have a creator without worship. 
and thanksgiving and praise. And you also have a meaning and a purpose and a reason for your life. Now, here's the problem. Atheists want meaning and purpose, but they don't want God who gives meaning and purpose. So they make up meaning and purpose, which they think uh, is meaningful, but it's make-believe stuff. They think they're being rational, but the consistent atheist is like Nietzsche, who comes to the conclusion that God is dead and so there's no purpose, so do what you like, it doesn't matter. But if you want meaning and purpose, if you want to find the reason you're here, that's where you need the creator. And if he's the creator, then you can't live for yourself anymore. You've got to live for God. You've got to worship him, not just for one hour on a Sunday, but all my life and all of time and all of eternity. Amen.